When somebody has wronged you, it's easy to be angry, bitter, and unforgiving. Alienation produces apprehension, anxiety, and anger. When that happens, how then is reconciliation possible? What makes reconciliation possible when you're angry and bitter, unforgiving, apprehensive, anxious? What happens? How is it possible for you to even want to be reconciled when you're in that kind of a frame of mind? I think the answer to that is revealed in Scripture in the life of a man who experienced a hideous, horrible injustice. And the way he handled it, what he said about the way he handled it, can teach us how to handle those kinds of injustices that tend to make us angry and bitter. I'm talking, of course, about Joseph in the book of Genesis. So will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 45 and let us look at the basis for reconciliation. And while you're turning to that chapter, let me just very briefly review what has happened up to this point. It's very important that you understand the several chapters before this so that you can understand what's going on in this chapter. As you recall, Joseph had 11 brothers, and they were jealous of him, and they decided to get rid of him. To make a rather long story short, they sold him to a caravan headed to Egypt. He was bought by that caravan, people in it, ended up in Egypt where he became a slave. And then to make the next episode, which is really long, short, once a slave, he got thrown into jail, and then, through some interesting turn of events, rose from prisoner to prime minister. He rose to the second highest in the land of Egypt. He was only second to Pharaoh himself. So, that's the background of what's happening here. Uh, he had a dream, and in that dream he predicted that there would be seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt, and after that there would be seven years of famine. So sure enough, there were seven years of plenty, and he was able to store the food to prepare for the next seven years of famine. When the famine hit, his brothers up in Palestine were sent by their fathers, or their father down to Egypt to buy food. They did not recognize Joseph. Uh, by that time, he looked like an Egyptian. Uh, he probably spoke through an interpreter. He was dressed in garb of the Egyptian. They didn't expect him to be a high official in Egypt, and furthermore, they probably had concluded years before that he was dead. So through an interesting series of events, he kept one of the brothers, 
sent the others back, and the father became very skeptical of sending anybody back to retrieve that brother because he was afraid he'd lose more of his kids. In his mind, he'd already lost Joseph. And then the, the famine got so severe that they, Joseph, uh, Jacob finally said, all right, go back, we've got to have food. So when they come back, uh, another long series of events take place. But the bottom line of that story is, here are these brothers all standing before Joseph again, and they don't know who he is. Now, one of them, Judah, has promised his father that he would bring Benjamin back, and Joseph has framed Benjamin. So now they're standing before Joseph with the possibility of having to return without Benjamin. And then a dramatic thing happens. Now I told you a minute ago to turn to chapter 45, but before we begin looking at chapter 45, I want you to look at the concluding verses of chapter 44. Verse 33 says, now Judah is speaking, now therefore please let your servant, that is me, remain instead of the lad, that is Benjamin, as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go back to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? He's already said, if I go back, if the brothers go back without Benjamin, it will kill our father. That can happen. So Judah steps up and says, I tell you what, I'll become your slave. Keep me. Just send Benjamin back. I promised my father I'd get Benjamin back to him. Please send Benjamin back. Now keep in mind, these are the brothers that sold Joseph into slavery. Uh, Joseph had every right to be angry with them. It would have been natural if he had been bitter against them. He could have been vindictive and punished them. But what Ju Judah just did really got to him. Here were these jealous brothers who sold him into slavery, and now they have completely demonstrated in prior episodes their trustworthiness, their repentance, and now, going way beyond that, one of them is willing to sacrifice himself to protect his brother. That's not only a 180, it's a way beyond 180 from selling his brother, Joseph, and now he's willing to sacrifice himself for Benjamin. Now that's the background to chapter 45, verse 1. When Joseph had not, could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood before him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Now let me explain. 
in the original Hebrew text, there is no chapter break between chapter 44 and chapter 45. This is all one continuous story. You've got to connect the end of chapter 44 with the beginning of chapter 45. What broke Joseph was Judah's offer to become a slave if he would just release Benjamin so he could go back to his father, Jacob. When that happened, Joseph couldn't uh, take it anymore. So he said, clear the court, clear the room, meaning all of those uh, Egyptian guards and servants were to leave. So they all left the room. And when they did, Joseph simply broke down and cried. Now verse 2 says that Joseph made himself, uh, the end of verse 1 says, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the whole house of Pharaoh heard what was going on. So they left the room, but they didn't leave the premises. They were no doubt standing right outside the door, and when they heard Joseph just break down and weep, they didn't understand what was going on. Uh, he was probably speaking to them in Hebrew instead of Egyptian. They just heard him weeping and wailing, and they probably went to the rest of Pharaoh's household, and so the news just swept through Pharaoh's court and guards and servants and household Something really weird's going over at the prime minister's house, the second in command. So, verse 3 says, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? Brothers' brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. So Joseph makes himself known to them. How does he do that? What does he say? I'm Joseph. Would that persuade them? It has been suggested that what he probably did now was speak in Hebrew. Uh, so that was unmistakable. And for him to say, I am Joseph, how is our father doing? By the way, he knew that. In a previous episode, he knew the father was still alive because he asked that. But he brings it up again, indicating what I'm really concerned about is I want to be reconciled with you, and I want to be reconciled with my father. Is he still alive? They were dumbfounded. They thought this guy was dead years ago. And here he is, an official in Egypt. They just couldn't fathom that. Verse 3 says, They could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. The Hebrew word translated dismayed means disturbed, alarmed, anxious, nervous, afraid. These poor brothers were terrified. That is basically what's going on. They're standing there dumbfounded, but it's much more than that. They are terrified. They sold this guy into slavery. What if he is really Joseph? What will he do to them? Because 
they are helpless standing before him. He has all the power. He could have them killed on the spot. And they just stood there in silence, terrified, anxious, nervous about what would come next. So, verse 4 says, And Joseph said to his brothers, Please, come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, how would he know that? Unless he was really Joseph. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now, it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh, the lord of all of his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, this is his little speech to his brothers. And what he basically says is this. Uh, you sold me into slavery, but it really wasn't you that was behind all of this. Now, what I'm about to say is very, very important. Three times he said God did this. Look at verse 5. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Verse 8. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he's made me a father to Pharaoh. That expression, father to Pharaoh, by the way, uh, probably something like I'm his parental advisor. I'm sort of like his parental figure. He listens to me, I give him advice. That's a figure of speech. But what I want you to see is that three times he said to them, it was not you, it was the Lord that was behind this. So, let me pause here and make an observation. Is Joseph bitter? Is he angry? Is he vindictive? No. Why not? Why not? And the answer is, the discerning hand of God was visible to him. That even though they had done something wrong to him, you could call it evil, you could call it wickedness, you could call it horrific, he saw beyond that that God could use even the wickedness 
they committed. Incredible. So I would like to suggest that discerning the hand of God in human affairs is the real basis for reconciliation. Let me repeat that. Discerning the hand of God in what has happened is the basis of reconciliation. He could forgive them, be reconciled to them, not because of anything they said or did or didn't say or didn't do, but because he understood that God could use even a wrong done to him. That is a profound thought. Roll that around in your brain. That's an unusual way to look at life, but it's a biblical way, it's a spiritual way, and it'll save you from anger and bitterness and vindictiveness. Someone has said, without it there would be uh, only bitterness and blame, rancor and revenge. The principle is, that whoever is spiritual perceives the hand of God in the course of events and therefore is able to forgive what others have done. No one who believes in the sovereignty of God in the affairs of life can bear a grudge or take revenge. Joseph magnanimously confronted his brothers with this sound doctrine. End of quote. I want to repeat one more line in that quote. Very, very interesting. No one who believes in the sovereignty of God and the affairs of life can bear a grudge or take revenge. If all you do is look at the wrong done to you, then the natural thing to do is be angry and bitter and maybe even want to seek some kind of revenge. But if you can see beyond that and see the sovereign hand of God working in life, then it's easy to let it all go and seek reconciliation and forgiveness rather than vindictiveness and revenge. So, he says to his brothers, I'm your brother, you did me wrong, but God did it, not you. Now that's what's going on in this passage. Let's pick up the story at verse 9. Now he says to them, hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus said your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall, hear, uh, be, and you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. For there are still five years of famine. Behold, your eyes 
and the eyes of my brother Benjamin. See that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. All right, the speech continues. The first part of the speech is to say, look, I know what you did was wrong, but I saw the hand of God behind that. It was to preserve life. It was to preserve your prosperity, posterity. So now what I want you to do, and this is the second half of the speech, I want you to go back to our father, tell him I'm the second in charge in Egypt, the glory I have in Egypt, he says, and bring him here, and I will take care of him. Matter of fact, I'll give you the land of Goshen. And that, by the way, was the fertile part of Egypt. It was some of the best land. Now, right now, there's a famine going on, but that famine is going to be over, and if they've settled in that, they're going to have the choicest piece of land in all of Egypt, and he had the power to give it to them. Somebody has said, Happy is the man whose eye is open to see the hand of God in everyday events. For to him, life always possesses a wonderful and true joy and glory. If you see the hand of God, there is joy instead of angerness and bitterness and a spirit of malice that wants to get even. So, he has said to them, Return and bring your father back. Verse 14, Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Now, what I'd like for you to do is sort of uh, analyze those two verses. Uh, pick out the things that happen, and uh, it would look something like this. Uh, he hugged them. Uh, he fell on Benjamin's neck. He wept. That's the second thing he did. Benjamin cried as well. Verse 15, the third thing he did is he kissed all of his brothers and they wept. And then it says they talked together. I read that and it really struck me as rather interesting. Uh, if there were people who were alienated from each other, they were at each other and there was anger between them, what would happen first? Don't you think, and I've been through this, I don't know how many times in counseling married couples, well, let's sit down and talk. Isn't that the first thing you'd want to do? Let's talk this thing out and tell each other you forgive each other and uh, let's, let's, uh, let's talk. That's the first thing you do. Then you get done talking and you say, now um, you need to hug each other. Maybe... Kiss each other. Isn't that the order you'd put it in? 
What struck me was, that's not what happened here. There was the hugging and kissing before there was talking, which talks to me, says to me, that Joseph's attitude was one of forgiveness and wanting reconciliation. There was nothing to talk about. I have forgiven you. I want to, I want to my father down here. I, I'm not going to hurt you in any way. I'm, God sent me down here to help you. God sent me down here to save your life. So he just wept over the possibility he had his brothers back. And then they talked. And I submit to you, the talking at this point wasn't concerning reconciliation or forgiveness. It was, let's play catch up. Been a lot of water gone under the bridge since we last had a chat. Let's sit down and have a talk. And so I submit to you, that's what they did. Somebody has said this. An appreciation of God's sovereign control produced in Joseph a character marked by graciousness, forgiveness, and acceptance. No one can force us out of God's will. I have known people who've become bitter because they lost a good job or a close family member or a prized possession. But these events are all part of God's sovereign plan to bring blessing. Even having suffered abuse in the past, as Joseph did, is no excuse for holding bitterness. Joseph didn't do any of that. Why not? Well, he tells us, because I realize that God sent me down here, not you. So, they've been reconciled. What happens next? Well, look at verse 16. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house. Remember back up the beginning of the chapter when he said, clear the room, and they stepped outside, but they heard what was going on, and the whole house of Pharaoh heard it? Well, now we're going to get the repercussions of that. Verse 16. And the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brother have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to, Jer to Joseph, Say to your brothers, so he understood what was going on at this point, Do this, load your animals and depart and go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me, I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. So what was he going to give them? Goshen. He then says in verse 19, Now you are commanded, do this, take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives, bring your father and come. And do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Wow! What would make a pagan king do something like that? What in the world is going on? That's a magnanimous offer. Give them the best. Why did he do that? Because Joseph 
saved their hide. It was Joseph who had the dream that there was going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. So Pharaoh was well aware that they were all eating now after two years of famine because of Joseph's wisdom. So if Joseph's got a family, we can help them. Bring them down here. We'll give them the best seat in the house, the best portion of the land, because we are grateful for what has happened through Joseph. Isn't that interesting? I'm suspecting he was grateful. I can't imagine any other reason why he would do this. He was thankful for what Joseph had done. But the principle here would be when you're grateful, you do good. You give them the best just out of gratitude. And when there is no gratitude, there is a selfish, stingy spirit. At any rate, he told them to load up the wagon. Uh, Look at verse 21. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments, but to Benjamin, now remember this is his full brother, the others are half-brothers, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed, and they said, and he said to them, See that you do not become troubled on the way. So because of Pharaoh's generosity and Joseph's gracious spirit. He gives them wagons, he gives them food, he gives them clothes, and he gives Benjamin more than all the rest. He gives him more changes of clothes than the rest, and he sends them back to the Father. He also gave Benjamin uh, 300 pieces of silver. He was so thrilled to be reconciled with his brother, he lavished him with gifts. And then he says to them, and this is an interesting verse, look at verse 24, uh, see that you be not become troubled along the way. Why would he say that? Remember what happened before? He sent them back and planted, uh, planted uh, some material that looked like they had they planted money one time, looked like they had stolen it. And the next time he sent them on their way and he planted a cup and accused Benjamin of stealing it, remember? (laughs) This time he says, oh, by the way, uh, don't worry this time. Just go. The Hebrew word translated trouble means to tremble, quake, be perturbed. And the idea here is don't doubt, don't fear. And one commentator suggests that what he's saying is, and don't quarrel among yourselves. He could just perhaps envision them getting out of town and one saying, you know, we wouldn't be in this mess if it weren't for you. You're the one that wanted to sell Joseph. And then say, well, it wasn't my idea, it was your idea. And then say, well, you did it, not me. And he's just saying, look, don't, don't quarrel, don't fear, go in peace and bring my father 
back to Egypt. So, the conclusion of the story is in verse 25. Then they went up out of Egypt, came to the land of Canaan, to Jacob, their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he's governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still, because he did not believe them. <laughs> they, back, they got back home and they said, Father, you're not going to believe this. Joseph's still alive. That was a shock. Joseph concluded a long time ago his son was dead and said so. But that isn't the shock. The shock is he's now head over all of Egypt. You've got to be kidding me. So the text says, his heart stood still. The Hebrew means it was numb. His heart was numb. He was shocked. Matter of fact, I think the idea here is he was stunned. He was so shocked and stunned, he didn't believe them. You're going to tell me Joseph's still alive? That's a hard thing to believe. But let's assume for a minute I believe Joseph's alive. You're going to tell me that Joseph is not only alive, but he's now, I've been saying, prime minister, vice president second in command in all of Egypt, you're going to... That doesn't make sense. No way am I believing that. What other lie are you going to tell me? So now what are they going to do? These poor boys, I mean, they got into more trouble because they sold Joseph. I mean, they've had the hardest time convincing their... As a matter of fact, when they came back and wanted to take Benjamin, he wouldn't let them, remember? The, the, the famine had to get more severe before he had let them take Benjamin back. Well, now... They're instructed to take Joseph, I mean, Jacob back, and he won't go. I don't, I'm not going. I'm not believing you. So what are they going to do now? Now look at verse 27. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when they, he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob's heart, their father, revived. Then Israel said, stop. Did that jump off at the page at you? Did you see what that said? Who are we talking about in these verses? Jacob, right? That's what the text says. Look at verse 27. Joseph had sent to carry him, and the spirit of who? Jacob was revived. Verse 28, then Israel said, now do you remember way back there in Genesis, God changed Jacob's name to Israel? Well, the fact that he says Jacob is talking and then all of a sudden calls him Israel is probably significant. Israel is his God-given name. And in light of the fact that the text just says that he didn't believe them, the fact that he calls them, the text calls him Israel, and that it says his heart was revived, his spirit was revived, 
seems to indicate that when he saw what they brought back from Egypt, that was the evidence that just maybe they were telling the truth. That all of a sudden, his spirit was revived, and he believed that the Lord had intervened. And I think that's what's going on in verse 28. So he says, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So he saw the evidence and believed. He became convinced that sure enough, just maybe, his son was alive. He agreed to go back to Egypt. Now, as you can imagine, we got lots more story to go. This book has 50 chapters in it, and we got lots more to cover. But this little episode tells us the basis of reconciliation. So we'll look at the rest of the story later. But I want to pause and make a couple of observations about this portion of Joseph's story. In this chapter, we're being taught that the recognition of the hand of God in evil, even in evil human affairs, makes reconciliation possible like nothing else. I mean, when there is gross injustice done, and you think they could never forgive these people for ruining my life, then how in the world are you reconciled? On what basis do you make reconciliation? In this case, which is one of the most outstanding cases of forgiveness and reconciliation in all of the Bible, it's very clear that it happened because Joseph recognized the sovereign hand of God in human affairs. Now that's the chapter. I'd like to make several observations before I close. I want to talk for a bit about this story in the context of the whole Bible. There's some interesting things going on here, like very few other passages. There is something in the Bible called a type. And the concept of a type is simple, simply that something happens and it is a type of something that's going to happen in the future. It is a, an example of something that's going to happen in the future. There are some parallels between this and what's going to happen in the future. Many, many Bible students studying the book of Genesis have concluded that uh, Joseph is a type of Christ. The text does not Say that. Now, the Bible does say that there are types. It even uses that, that very phrase in one passage, in Peter. But the Old Testament had a lamb, and that was a type, an example of the kind of thing God wanted. But Jesus was the fulfillment of that type because John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God when he looked at Jesus. Now, that's a type. The literal lamb was a type of a sacrifice for sin in the person of Christ. Well, many have pointed out that what happened to Joseph is a type of Christ. 
And while I tend to think that we should stick with the types that the New Testament says are types, there are a few cases where the evidence is overwhelming that God intended a type. And I think this is one of those few rare occasions. So in the words of another student of the scripture, it goes like this. Though the Bible never identifies Joseph as a type of Christ, many parallels are significant. Both were special objects of their father's love. Their brothers hated them both, rejected their superior claims, and conspired to kill them. Both became a blessing to the Gentiles. Both received the bride. Joseph reconciled with his brothers and exalted them, and so will Christ. Another made the parallel by saying, both Abraham and Jacob figuratively received their sons back from the dead. Both sons prefigured the death and resurrection of Christ but Joseph even more so. Both were not only alive, but rulers over all. Jacob's response on hearing the incredibly good news prefigures the response of the disciples when the women tell them that Christ is alive, having been raised from the dead. They too greet the news at first with stunned unbelief, and finally, with unspeakable joy, when it is proven by many infallible proofs, then they accepted it. Their faith, like Jacob's, revived them, reoriented their lives, and made them pilgrims, venturing from the land pledged, plagued by famine to the best land imaginable. So somewhere along the line in studying Joseph, we need to see the parallels between what happened to him and what happened to Christ. But, while that's there, the point of this chapter is that Joseph was willing to be reconciled to his brothers because he saw the sovereign hand of God. Actually, four times he says God was involved in what happened. Three times he said that to his brothers. And the fourth time he said it to his brothers to be told to his father. So a total of four times in this passage he says, the Lord is the one who allowed all this to happen. So someone has said, Outstanding in this section is the way in which Joseph's perception of God's way made him gracious, forgiving, and accepting rather than bitter and vindictive. He saw the loving hand of his father behind the cruelty of his brothers. He had accepted all that had come to him as the will of God, and therefore he experienced the blessing of God. Reconciliation is possible when there is forgiveness, and forgiveness is possible when there's the recognition of God's sovereignty. You ever been done wrong? Grievously wrong? Did you ever get angry? Hang on to the anger until it became resentment. Did you ever struggle with turning it loose? 
Were you ever not reconciled because of the attitude of your heart? Well, here's something you need to consider. That just maybe it wasn't just them, but God allowed it for some greater good. And that's the lesson of this chapter. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So no matter what happens to you, no matter what someone else does to you, you're a lot better off looking for the hand of God instead of being filled with hatred in your heart. So one commentator says, reconciliation comes through forgiveness and forgiveness through the recognition of God's sovereignty. When one who has been wrong sees things as God sees them, he can perceive them as God planned them and can communicate the understanding then that's the basis for, the com- for compassion and, give- and forgiveness. Then reconciliation is possible. But anyone who bears a grudge or hopes to retaliate has not come to appreciate the meaning of the sovereignty of God without forgiveness that comes from its appreciation there can be no reconciliation, end of quote. So the lesson of this chapter is real simple. Don't just look at the wrong done to you. Don't just look at the person who did the wrong to you. Look at the bigger picture. And when you see the hand of God that lets all things work together for good to those who know him and serve him, then you can have a forgiving spirit and an attitude of reconciliation. Father, that's not the normal way we think. We want to get even. We want to revenge. We cry out we want justice. Sometimes it's hard to turn loose. But Father, thank you for this reminder that you are sovereign, that nothing happens to your children without your permission, and that you have all things work together for good to those who love you. Father, may the Spirit of God impress this upon our hearts, and may it become a practical reality in our lives, In Jesus' name, amen.